This podcast is brought to you by the UCL Institute of Orthopaedics and Musculoskeletal Science. So I'm very pleased to present Prof Keith Willett, who's the National Clinical Director for Trauma, and he was appointed in 2009. Prof Willett, would you like to just summarise about your career and how you came to be in this position? Okay, career-wise, for me, trauma was one of those things that fascinated me as a registrar. And the further I went on my registrar training, I was still more fascinated than a lot of the consultants. Orthopaedics and trauma was very different in the the 80s. It was very much a junior-led service. Consultant input was limited. Most occurred out of hours, and it was almost all registrar, teach registrar. And I vowed at the end of my training that I would not allow trauma patients to be treated under my care in the way that I'd seen them treated, and also that the training would be better than it was. So I set a goal that trauma needs to be reorganised substantially. In fact, in the 80s, you couldn't really get trauma training in the 90s. You couldn't get trauma training very well in the UK. We didn't have specialty centres. There were places like Nottingham with Professor Chris Colton and others who were leading, but really they were very small islands of good quality care. So I, like others at the time, had to go overseas. Canada was very popular uh, at the time, and I did uh, a pelvic and acetabular fellowship in Toronto. I also did spine out there as well, and those are things you couldn't really do in the UK at the time. At the same time as that, ATLS was on the horizon. It was 1988 that the American College of Trauma came over here and ran the first course under the aegis of the Royal College of Surgeons of England. And although I was only a senior registrar at the time, I got chosen as one of the three orthopaedic surgeons to become the first, one of the first 20 ATLS instructors in the UK. And that was fascinating. And the fact that the senior registrar in orthopaedics was chosen probably suggests that there were very few consultants who were indeed interested. In fact, the other two were Chris Colton and Peter Warlock. And that's when I first met Peter Warlock. And Peter Warlock and I had very similar ideas about what we wanted to do. We wanted to build a trauma services in the UK really based on three principles. One was that all care, irrespective of the time of the day or night, should be consultant-delivered. Secondly, that all clinical episodes should be a training opportunity, irrespective of the time of the day or night. And that if we were going to move on to do research, we had to set a uniformity of standard of care in trauma such that you could study it. And that meant... For trauma being a 24-hour specialty, it had to be 24-hour consultant delivered. So, and this will sound really, really OTT, but when I was a senior registrar and I was looking to try and set up a trauma service in the UK, I got the retirement dates of every orthopaedic consultant in the country and worked out where the gaps would come up at the time I was ready to take an appointment and then looked at the units to work out which units were right to be changed. And I had a few in mind, and I won't say what they were, it's a long time ago, but Oxford <laughs> was one of them, and Oxford was one of them purely because it had a split-site orthopaedic practice already. The trauma service in Oxford had been, in the days of what's called the accident service, had been of high repute, but had fallen away somewhat. And interestingly, Peter Warlock and I both looked at the job when it first came up, but I hadn't done my fellowship, and he had, and it was Partly because of that, that I went and did the same fellowship that he did in Toronto uh, under Marvin Tyler and Joe Shatsker, who at the time were the gods of orthopaedic trauma. And we both came back together here and in 1992 hatched the plan. And within 15 months of hatching the plan, we completely changed the service here. So everybody's job description changed. 
from the ward clerks through to the consultants. All the operating list structure changed. We went to a 24-hour resident on-call consultant service in 1994. That was trauma team leader. We had 24-hour access to theatres in those days without any problem. But what we did try and address was the, what we knew was the issue of working time directive. So we dropped to, I think it was 68-hour contracts, which in 1992 was really radical. And the idea of putting consultants, orthopaedic surgeons, on residents. Yeah. And I have to say, I took quite a hammering. Um, I took a hammering from the BMA, mm-hmm. BMA News, uh, in January 1994, labelled me the thin end of a most damaging wedge. I actually thought about having that as my epitaph, because... I thought traumas are, might be a bit more, um, <laughs> might be a bit more flattering. But... Well, no, I think that actually just, that sort of really <laughs> determined what was going to happen in the next 20 years. It was 20 years before, really, a lot of the rest of the country has got anywhere near what we tried to do in 1994. And I have to say, we didn't have a problem recruiting. People didn't like what we were doing. There was quite a lot of tension around the country. But for many years, we had the best outcomes. There is this sort of aspect of introducing a matter of radical change um, and how you go about it. Being sort of a lead consultant, I think most consultants are now feeling more and more so perhaps their wings are being clipped. If they have visions about how to change things, they have to go through quite a lot of bureaucracy and management, etc. How do you cope with that kind of thing, or is it...? You've got to go at it not just from the I want, I want, I want. You've got to go in there, and as we should do, looking at all the service changes that we do in a way to look at all the, all the outcomes, mm. all the outputs. So it's not just about improving patient care, it's about saying what resources have we got and how do we use them. I didn't ask for any more money, we had no more money through the whole of that change period. So we produced dramatically better outcomes, we had a much better team structure. And what we did, we came up with a basic concept that we were going to put 24-hour consultants in to run the service, and that those were going to be the principles that I said before. What, we then, what I then did was to set up interface groups with every part of the hospital. So we had a core team that were changing it, which was the senior nurse here, who's still here. Um, we had Peter Warlock and myself, and then we had what was a, who was a very junior manager at the time, but really innovative uh, and really, really bright girl, with, a, with the four of us in the core group. Uh, and, we had, and then what we did was we set up an interface. So one of us joined up with a senior and a junior member from each department in the hospital that we work with. So we'd have a consultant radiologist and a radiographer. The three people sat down, so we did that with anaesthetics, we did it with theatres, we did radiology, we did it with all the areas in the hospital, pathology, blood transfusion, uh, A&E, everybody. And we said, right, we're going to redesign our system. We're starting with a blank sheet of paper. We know the principles we want to achieve from an orthopaedic trauma perspective. What are the problems you have with us? And I'll just give you an example of that. So when we did it with radiology, one of the first things they came up with was, you know, the hassle you give us because you come to us halfway through the morning, you want a CT scan done by lunchtime because your plans are operate in the afternoon. Same thing applied with ultrasound. And they've got their day planned out. That's really disruptive. Then you want to chuck in a trauma call in the middle of that. And they found that really, really disruptive because they have the whole hospital to serve. Mm. So... That was their biggest problem with us. They were very supportive of what we're doing, very supportive of having consultant input into every decision about radiology, and that interface would be at consultant level, which for them was a, a real quality issue, because one of their methods by which they stopped patients getting scans was to say, have you spoken to a consultant? That was the standard phrase. So by doing that, they were very positive. And so what we did, we sat down and very quickly, you've got to look at the whole 
activity numbers, you've got to look at the cost effectiveness of what you're doing. So we sat down and we agreed that on average we did two ultrasounds and two CT scans every day. So what we agreed was the first two slots in CT and the first two slots in ultrasound before the rest of the hospital had woken up were traumas to book. Thanks. And we could book them directly provided it was consultant booked. And 20 years later that still happens. So if I see a patient at Tibble Plateau at 11 o'clock tonight, they can be on the first patient on the list, yeah. if that's what I want. We also agree things like spinal clearance, because all those things became important. And those interfaces worked really well. So when we went live, and we went live on the 1st of January 1994, everybody had bought into it, and everybody owned the change. Mm. And the junior people and the senior people in each interface group in the hospital had to go and make sell it to their colleagues mm. that this was going to be an improvement. That's how you make change. We ran a study over the period of the time. We had occupational psychologists involved because I was taking consultants and putting them resident on call. So the occupational psychology element interviewed the consultants, their partners, the physiotherapists, their partners, the ward clerks, everybody in the system that underwent the change. And everybody was interviewed and we got some really good qualitative evidence which at the time people weren't doing. But to actually understand, and it was interesting from a consultant perspective and many consultants found this bit um, quite appealing. A, the number of days you work is substantially less in terms of commitment, but you're committed to work very hard when you're there. But also, as a consultant, particularly in those days, you were very unpredictable. You were often home late because lists overran or emergencies came in. You went out to dinner and you got called, called back, back to the hospital. And then, the, so the attitude was you didn't call the consultant because they would be upset. What happened is when they talked to the partners we became predictable. And some other things were real real spin-offs which sound which sound at the time to me not particularly <laughs> important but now I'm older many consultants when they retire are said to spoil their grandchildren and because they never saw enough of their children. But actually I you would have days off because you on the system we had you never worked in the 24-hour period doing anything after the day you came off of call. Mm. So you pick kids up from school. So this trauma unit in Oxford is actually quite unique in the fact that the traumatologists or what we've got as traumatologists mm. are orthopaedic based whereas other trauma units are doing sort of general surgery. Yeah. Talk to me about how you feel about that and what you think the new traumatologist or sort of trauma consultant in England or the UK how they will be trained and what kind of backgrounds they'll be coming from. Yeah, I think, I think this, is a, this is an interesting one because whenever you've reviewed the interest, specialist interests of consultants in the country, and the BOA have done it several times, those who put trauma in the top three is less than 15% of the three interest areas. But Do you think that's more governed by the fact that trauma doesn't come with the predictable nature? I think that's there's, right. there's certain money issues. That... In the 80s and 90s, the private practice options were enormous because mm. there were really long waiting lists and it was a much bigger thing. Now, with a number of orthopedic consultants and in many parts of the country, private practice is not the draw that it was. And the constraint now, an appropriate constraint, on, I think, what people can do electively that's justified and not justified. And we have to accept that. There are some operations that really don't work that we still carry on doing. You know, we've got to be a... We've got to be a... Have, we can't turn around and say there's not enough money in the system, we need more of this, we need more of this, when there are areas in our practice that really, I think, we have to look very hard at. In trauma as well, not just elective surgery, we look, we've got to scrutinise ourselves a lot better. That's being professional. So I think there was always this tension about was trauma going to be something that somebody would only do and I don't have a strong view about that certainly I think there is a proportion of people out there 
that want to do trauma for all their careers, but you have to recognise then you've got to make it a very sustainable service and you can't be up every night working every night. So what we created was a sustainable service and I mm. think what we have here is a sustainable service. The number of days you work mm. um, is, I think, acceptable here. You get a lot of time off. It's a reverse contract. It's not sure. like you book leave. It's almost like you book to work the, the shifts that you want to do. And how do you feel that, um, for example, a registrar at my level um, who envisages themselves being involved in trauma at a consultant sort of level... How do you think that the training is going to be affected by these major trauma networks? It's, it's got to be better. I think there's a fallacy here that people say, oh, well, if I'm out, you know, if all the major traumas go into major trauma centre, you know, we're half the jobs that we're doing in the district hospitals are not going to get trauma training. I'm afraid that's just not true. The tr people weren't trained in those hospitals in that type of trauma. All they saw was poor care in many places. And we aren't taking away the vast majority of trauma from district hospitals, you know. You'll still have all the ankles, you'll still have all the tibias, you'll still have all the, the wrists, you'll still have all the hips, you know, you still have the vast majority of what makes up 98% of the trauma practice in the district hospital. So you won't do that. So the training does need to change in that every trainee must rotate, I believe, through a major trauma centre for an equal amount to the length of time they may rotate through a, a, an elective unit. So those that have, you know, go through Oswestry or Nuffield Orthopaedic Centre or wherever, We've got to have them rotating through the major trauma centres. And the way we set up the training here was that we volunteered to take all the brand new registrars. And so for six months they had 24-hour supervision, which was a great way to start because they were never left on their own. They were never looking at the books trying to work out how to do an operation that they'd never seen or done before. And that's what used to happen. That's certainly what happened when we put the system together. That's what we were trying to change. And I think that was really important. Then we like to cut them to come back in year four or five, peri, peri FRCS time, so that you can sort of finish off. And actually when they went to the district hospital, you know, after six months of being here, they were in a much better position. Well, they'd learnt it from yeah. a much higher level rather than making up sort of certain shortcuts and getting into bad habits. And, and, also seen that, and I think the other important thing is when you are inexperienced, mm. it's making decisions in context when you haven't got the experience. That's really difficult, you know. Is this really a really strange ankle fracture? Or is this a barn door normal one? Well, if you've seen a whole load of trauma concentrated for six months, you're much more likely to say, actually, I don't think any of the ankles I ever saw look like that. Like I'm going to phone the consultant, whereas I recognise this as a barn door, mm. straightforward, you know, mm. paper B. You would have a certain number of orthopaedic surgeons that are, that are um, interested in trauma, and, and that's great. Whether you will have enough to support the 22 major trauma centres in the country with you know, pure trauma, I think probably not. But then there are good examples out there of mixed trauma and orthopaedic practices. It puts a lot more people in the pot, which makes protocols and the delivery a little bit more difficult, but the units are doing it. Places like Nottingham have done it very successfully for many years. So I don't have a problem with that. I think it's interesting around the general surgery, particular vascular surgery, or in fact intensive care taking the lead in trauma. And I don't think it matters as long as they're committed and interested to trauma. In general, we know that for the non-central urban practices, you only need a general surgeon, about 4% of cases actually end up doing something surgically. And so general surgeons on the whole um, have, not unreasonably, not taken the lead in most places. 
in the urban centres where you're getting a lot of violent, penetrating assault type trauma. The vascular Like London, you know, the Royal London's up to 27% of their trauma calls are penetrating assaults. Oxford, we're lucky if we see one or two a year, (laughs) or unlucky for the patient if we see one or two a year. So that's very different. And in those environments, I think you quite likely will see general surgery or a non-orthopedic team taking the leadership. And I think something else is going on there alongside it. A, I think there's a group of people that want to do that, but also vascular surgery is going through a bit of a morph over time. You know, interventional radiology for all of us is one of the most important service changes in the future. It will affect orthopaedics, it will affect oncology, it will affect everybody. But for vascular surgery, it's probably had a more profound effect sooner. Mm. And I think vascular surgeons are looking to broaden their scope, but also they're really good at stopping bleeding. And that is one of the two major surgical interventions you make in a major trauma patient. One is the neurosciences intervention, the other is stopping bleeding. So I think, you know, we will see vascular surgeons probably morph, and it will certainly be in the central urban areas where there's a high penetrating trauma rate. But that currently looks like London, Birmingham and Leeds. With regards to the national policy for the regional networks for major trauma, could you possibly just briefly describe some elements of this and how you came up with this for... Well, I didn't, and I think that's really important. The same way as I made the changes here, okay, I know where I wanted to go, I knew the principles, but it had to be a, an NHS England solution. Looking around the world, there's lots of different models of trauma, and we're one of the latest to get there, so there's no point going away and starting a completely new model. The American model has only limited transferability to the UK. A lot of Europe has limited transferability, but has similar populations. So some of that was quite useful. But the Australians, for various colonial reasons, have a very NHS-like system in many ways, and their professional boundaries, more importantly, are very similar. So how the groups work together was similar. So we did base a lot, and also you'll be aware that the Victoria State Trauma System is the most audited uh, and sophisticated system. It's really impressive, and so we were very short of data as to what would happen in this country. At the time I was appointed to implement the regional trauma networks, Tom was recording from less than 50% of hospitals. Good data for those, but everybody else was, was in a void. So the principles were, I think, relatively easy to determine. So what I then did was to establish five clinical advisory groups, ranging from pre-hospital through to rehabilitation. And on each of those groups of 20, I put in every professional group. And I didn't go directly to the colleges or special associations and say, send me one, because the difficulty there is you tend to get the high yeah, officers who may not be the movers and shakers in trauma who are living and breathing it and want it to change. I collected together the people who were really committed and then let the colleges lobby them to make sure the colleges and special association views were important. So we had, you know, we would have everybody from allied health, from nursing, from paramedics, from general practitioners, from neuropsychologists, from everybody across the board that was appropriate for the section. And they came up with what became the NHS Clinical Advisory Group report. So it's NHS people telling the NHS what they thought they should look at as each SHA was then charged with delivering the change process. And that was a very pragmatic exercise, and you have to be, you have to be sensitive, you have to be pragmatic. So, you know, there's a wish list out there, but that is just impossible to deliver. You can't give everything to everybody. And in most part, it had to be done within the constraints of what we believed were, was that if we treated people properly, then actually the care would be no more expensive and possibly cheaper. 
Milan, when in about 2007, I think, we audited the delays for pelvic, pelvic and tablet surgery mm. between Leeds, Bristol, Oxford, um, and St George's. And the average delay was between 7 and 12 days. And when the window for surgery is less than that, it was just illogical. And a lot of those patients were sat in critical care beds in the wrong hospital. Mm. So by the time they came to a pelvic unit, they were had complications, lots of issues around their care. The surgery then became much more difficult with much higher risk of complication. And the outcomes we know, particularly in acetabular surgery, much worse. woeful in comparison. So just that was just one example of how the system didn't, didn't work. And we knew also perhaps more critically in terms of survival, our delays to getting to neurosciences beds with traumatic brain injury, which is the, the biggest killer, were, again, unacceptable. Just moving as tack a little bit, um, with regards to sort of up-and-coming post-CCT orthopaedic registrars at the moment, there's quite a high competitive ratio for the job market. Yeah. A lot of them are concerned about adding feathers to their bow. Trauma seems to be a good thing to have yeah. a good experience in. And fellowships are a contentious issue pre-post-CCT in the UK, outside the UK. I was just wondering whether you had any particular views about this or any advice for this sort of level. I would say... Post exam, and if possible, I would say overseas. Why do you think that? If you're looking for a job, mm. the temptation is, as a senior trainee, to think uh, my best chance is to get it somewhere where I'm known, and that's cosy for both sides. Cosy for both sides is what I call incestuous appointments, and incestuous appointments slowly, unless they are exceptional people constrain a unit and Barry Parker who was previous BOA treasurer and one of my mentors when I came back from my fellowship in Canada to be interviewed for the, the job in Oxford I got off the plane at Heathrow and went straight round to his house for breakfast and I said you know what is it that you're looking for in a colleague you know is it someone you can get on with whatever and he said some of the wisest words to me which I have continued to, to use he said no, he said, because actually consultants very rarely spend much time together. He said, what I'm looking for is someone who's going to bring a new facet to my department. My, depart- my department doesn't grow when you arrive, I've made the wrong appointment. And I think that's a really important concept for trainees. And so if you go anywhere in the UK at the moment, yes, you will have a good experience probably, and you'll have a good fellowship. But how many new things will you have been challenged by? Because you'll be working in a system. And when I went to Toronto... And I went over there as a rather, uh, I'm sure, noxious um, <laughs> young man. And I took over the trauma team leader job voluntarily. So I was doing trauma team leader for the whole of Ontario. And I was in there. And I could not believe how this team was working around me. Because I wasn't doing anything. You know, it was all protocol driven. And we just did nothing like it. It all seemed a bit OTT to me. But I reserved my judgment. And I could not believe the number of Arche autograms that were done. It was deceleration injury, got an arch autogram, and I just thought, I'd never seen them in England being yeah. done, and I just thought, this is completely over the top, you know, this is somebody out of MASH. Um, but actually, in my first 20 arch autograms that I would not have done, two were positive. And I just thought, ouch, yeah. Mm. You know, I, I've seen something different, challenged my practice, and... We get very opinionated in orthopaedics. You do, you know, if you're not opinionated and can't make decisions, you're not a good surgeon. 
Um, but also, we have to be very receptive to change. And I think the advantage of going overseas is you just see a different approach and you see what works. And, and presumably a different pattern of different injuries and obviously the patient demographic changes as well. Yeah, so absolutely. I think it's an interesting, contentious issue at the moment and I think that's really helpful for the trainees. Thank you. This podcast is brought to you by the UCL Institute of Orthopaedics and Musculoskeletal Science.